Chapter 7, Part 1 of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey. Chapter 7, Part 1. Chapter 7 Widowhood. 1. The death of the Prince Consort was the central turning point in the history of Queen Victoria. She herself felt that her true life had ceased with her husband's, and that the remainder of her days upon earth was of a twilight nature, an epilogue to a drama that was done. Nor is it possible that her biographer should escape a similar impression. For him, too, there is a darkness over the latter half of that long career. The first forty-two years of the Queen's life are illuminated by a great and varied quantity of authentic information. With Albert's death, a veil descends. Only occasionally, at fitful and disconnected intervals, does it lift for a moment or two. A few main outlines, a few remarkable details may be discerned. The rest is all conjecture and ambiguity. Thus, though the Queen survived her great bereavement for almost as many years as she had lived before it, the chronicle of those years can bear no proportion to the tale of her earlier life. We must be content in our ignorance with a brief and summary relation. The sudden removal of the Prince was not merely a matter of overwhelming personal concern to Victoria. It was an event of national, of European importance. He was only forty-two, and in the ordinary course of nature he might have been expected to live at least thirty years longer. Had he done so, it can hardly be doubted that the whole development of the English polity would have been changed. Already at the time of his death he filled a unique place in English public life. Already among the inner circle of politicians he was accepted as a necessary and useful part of the mechanism of the state. Lord Clarendon, for instance, spoke of his death as a national calamity of far greater importance than the public dream of, and lamented the loss of his sagacity and foresight, which he declared would have been more than ever valuable in the event of an American war. And, as time went on, the Prince's influence must have enormously increased, for in addition to his intellectual and moral qualities, he enjoyed by virtue of his position one supreme advantage which every other holder of high office in the country was without. He was permanent. Politicians came and went, but the prince was perpetually installed at the center of affairs. Who can doubt that toward the end of the century such a man, grown gray in the service of the nation, virtuous, intelligent, and with the unexampled experience of a whole lifetime of government, would have acquired an extraordinary prestige. If in his youth he had been able to pit the crown against the mighty Palmerston and to come off with equal honors from the contest, of what might he not have been capable in his old age? What minister, however able, however popular, could have withstood the wisdom, the irreproachability, the vast prescriptive authority of the venerable prince? It is easy to imagine how, under such a ruler, an attempt might have been made to convert England into a state as exactly organized, as elaborately trained, as efficiently equipped, 
and as autocratically controlled as Prussia herself. Then, perhaps, eventually under some powerful leader, a Gladstone or a Bright, the democratic forces in the country might have rallied together, and a struggle might have followed in which the monarchy would have been shaken to its foundations. Or, on the other hand, Disraeli's hypothetical prophecy might have come true. With Prince Albert, he said, we have buried our sovereign. This German prince has governed England for twenty-one years with a wisdom and energy such as none of our kings have ever shown. If he had outlived some of our old stagers, he would have given us the blessings of absolute government. The English Constitution, that indescribable entity, is a living thing, growing with the growth of men and assuming ever-varying forms in accordance with the subtle and complex laws of human character. It is the child of wisdom and chance. The wise men of 1688 molded it into the shape we know, but the chance that George I could not speak English gave it one of its essential peculiarities, the system of a cabinet independent of the crown and subordinate to the prime minister. The wisdom of Lord Grey saved it from petrifaction and destruction, and set it upon the path of democracy. Then chance intervened once more. A female sovereign happened to marry an able and pertinacious man, and it seemed likely that an element which had been quiescent within it for years, the element of irresponsible administrative power, was about to become its predominant characteristic, and to change completely the direction of its growth. But what chance gave, chance took away. The consort perished in his prime, and the English constitution, dropping the dead limb with hardly a tremor, continued its mysterious life as if he had never been. One human being, and one alone, felt the full force of what had happened. The baron, by his fireside at Coburg, suddenly saw the tremendous fabric of his creation crash down into sheer and irremediable ruin. Albert was gone, and he had lived in vain. Even his blackest hypochondria had never envisioned quite so miserable a catastrophe. Victoria wrote to him, visited him, tried to console him by declaring with passionate conviction that she would carry on her husband's work, he smiled a sad smile and looked into the fire. Then he murmured that he was going where Albert was, that he would not be long. He shrank into himself. His children clustered round him and did their best to comfort him, but it was useless. The baron's heart was broken. He lingered for eighteen months, and then, with his pupil, explored the shadow and the dust. Two. With appalling suddenness, Victoria had exchanged the serene radiance of happiness for the utter darkness of woe. In the first dreadful moments, those about her had feared that she might lose her reason. But the iron strain within her held firm, and in the intervals between the intense paroxysms of grief, it was observed that the Queen was calm. She remembered, too, that Albert had always disapproved of exaggerated manifestations of feeling, and her one remaining desire was to do nothing but what he would have wished. Yet there were moments when her royal anguish would brook no restraints. 
One day she sent for the Duchess of Sutherland, and, leading her to the prince's room, fell prostrate before his clothes in a flood of weeping, while she adjured the Duchess to tell her whether the beauty of Albert's character had ever been surpassed. At other times a feeling akin to indignation swept over her. "'The poor fatherless baby of eight months,' she wrote to the King of the Belgians, "'is now the utterly heartbroken and crushed widow of forty-two. "'My life as a happy one is ended. "'The world is gone for me. "'Oh, to be cut off in the prime of life, "'to see our pure, happy, quiet, domestic life, "'which alone enabled me to bear my much-disliked position, "'cut off at forty-two? when i had hoped with such instinctive certainty that god never would part us and would let us grow old together though he always talked of the shortness of life is too awful too cruel the tone of outraged majesty seems to be discernible did she wonder in her heart of hearts how the deity could have dared but all other emotions gave way before her overmastering determination to continue, absolutely unchanged, and for the rest of her life on earth, her reverence, her obedience, her idolatry. I am anxious to repeat one thing, she told her uncle, and that one is my firm resolve, my irrevocable decision, that is to say, that his wishes, his plans about everything, his views about everything are to be my law, and no human power will make me swerve from what he decided and wished. She grew fierce, she grew furious at the thought of any possible intrusion between her and her desire. Her uncle was coming to visit her, and it flashed upon her that he might try to interfere with her and seek to rule the roost as of old she would give him a hint. "'I am also determined,' she wrote, "'that no one person, may he be ever so good, ever so devoted among my servants, is to lead or guide or dictate to me. I know how he would disapprove it. Though miserably weak and utterly shattered, my spirit rises when I think any wish or plan of his is to be touched or changed, or I am to be made to do—' anything. She ended her letter in grief and affection. She was, she said, his ever-wretched but devoted child, Victoria R. And then she looked at the date. It was the 24th of December. An agonizing pang assailed her, and she dashed down a postscript. What a Xmas! I won't think of it. At first, in the tumult of her distresses, she declared that she could not see her ministers, and the Princess Alice, assisted by Sir Charles Phipps, the keeper of the privy purse, performed to the best of her ability the functions of an intermediary. After a few weeks, however, the cabinet, through Lord John Russell, ventured to warn the Queen that this could not continue. She realized that they were right. Albert would have agreed with them, and so she sent for the Prime Minister but when Lord Palmerston arrived at Osborne in the pink of health, brisk, with his whiskers freshly dyed and dressed in a brown overcoat, light grey trousers, green gloves, and blue studs, he did not create a very good impression. 
Nevertheless, she had grown attached to her old enemy, and the thought of a political change filled her with agitated apprehensions. The government, she knew, might fall at any moment. She felt she could not face such an eventuality, and therefore, six months after the death of the prince, she took the unprecedented step of sending a private message to Lord Derby, the leader of the opposition, to tell him that she was not in a fit state of mind or body to undergo the anxiety of a change of government, and that if he turned the present ministers out of office, it would be at the risk of sacrificing her life or her reason. When this message reached Lord Derby, he was considerably surprised. "'Dear me,' was his cynical comment, "'I didn't think she was so fond of them as that.' Though the violence of her perturbations gradually subsided, her cheerfulness did not return. For months, for years, she continued in settled gloom. Her life became one of almost complete seclusion. Arrayed in thickest crepe, she passed dolefully from Windsor to Osborne, from Osborne to Balmoral, rarely visiting the capital, refusing to take any part in the ceremonies of state, shutting herself off from the slightest intercourse with society. She became almost as unknown to her subjects as some potentate of the East. They might murmur, but they did not understand. What had she to do with empty shows and vain enjoyments? No, she was absorbed by very different preoccupations. She was the devoted guardian of a sacred trust. Her place was in the inmost shrine of the house of mourning, where she alone had the right to enter, where she could feel the effluence of a mysterious presence, and interpret, however faintly and feebly, the promptings of a still-living soul. That, and that only, was her glorious, her terrible duty. For terrible, indeed, it was. As the years passed, her depression seemed to deepen, and her loneliness to grow more intense. "'I am on a dreary, sad pinnacle of solitary grandeur,' she said. Again and again she felt that she could bear her situation no longer, that she would sink under the strain. And then, instantly, that voice spoke, and she braced herself once more to perform with minute conscientiousness her grim and holy task. Above all else, what she had to do was to make her own the master impulse of Albert's life. She must work as he had worked in the service of the country. That vast burden of toil which he had taken upon his shoulders it was now for her to bear. She assumed the gigantic load, and naturally she staggered under it. While he had lived, she had worked, indeed, with regularity and conscientiousness. But it was work made easy, made delicious by his care, his forethought, his advice, and his infallibility. The mere sound of his voice asking her to sign a paper had thrilled her. In such a presence she could have labored gladly forever. But now there was a hideous change. Now there were no neat piles and docketings under the green lamp. Now there were no simple explanations of difficult matters. Now there was nobody to tell her what was right and what was wrong. She had her secretaries, no doubt. There were Sir Charles Phipps and General Grey and Sir Thomas Bidolph, and they did their best. But they were mere subordinates. 
the whole weight of initiative and responsibility rested upon her alone for so it had to be i am determined had she not declared it that no one person is to lead or guide or dictate to me anything else would be a betrayal of her trust she would follow the prince in all things he had refused to delegate authority he had examined into every detail with his own eyes he had made it a rule never to sign a paper without having first not merely read it but made notes on it too she would do the same she sat from morning till night surrounded by huge heaps of despatch boxes reading and writing at her desk at her desk alas which stood alone now in the room within two years of albert's death a violent disturbance in foreign politics put victoria's faithfulness to a crucial test the fearful schleswig-holstein dispute which had been smouldering for more than a decade showed signs of bursting out into conflagration the complexity of the questions at issue was indescribable only three people said palmerston have ever really understood the schleswig-holstein business the prince consort who is dead a german professor who has gone mad and i who have forgotten all about it but though the prince might be dead had he not left a vice-regent behind him victoria threw herself into the seething embroilment with the vigor of inspiration she devoted hours daily to the study of the affair in all its windings but she had a clue through the labyrinth whenever the question had been discussed albert she recollected it perfectly had always taken the side of prussia her course was clear she became an ardent champion of the prussian point of view it was a legacy from the prince she said she did not realize that the prussia of the prince's day was dead and that a new prussia the prussia of bismarck was born perhaps palmerston with his queer prescience instinctively apprehended the new danger at any rate he and lord john were agreed upon the necessity of supporting denmark against prussia's claims but opinion was sharply divided not only in the country but in the cabinet for eighteen months the controversy raged while the queen with persistent vehemence opposed the prime minister and the foreign secretary when at last the final crisis arose when it seemed possible that england would join forces with denmark in a war against prussia victoria's agitation grew febrile in its intensity towards her german relatives she preserved a discreet appearance of impartiality but she poured out upon her ministers a flood of appeals protests and expostulations she invoked the sacred cause of peace the only chance of preserving peace for europe she wrote is by not assisting denmark who has brought this entirely upon herself the queen suffers much and her nerves are more and more totally shattered but though all this anxiety is wearing her out it will not shake her firm purpose of resisting any attempt to involve this country in a mad and useless combat she was she declared prepared to make a stand even if the resignation of the foreign secretary should follow the queen she told lord granville 
is completely exhausted by the anxiety and suspense, and misses her beloved husband's help, advice, support, and love in an overwhelming manner. She was so worn out by her efforts for peace that she could hardly hold up her head or hold her pen. England did not go to war, and Denmark was left to her fate. But how far the attitude of the Queen contributed to this result, it is impossible with our present knowledge to say. On the whole, however, it seems probable that the determining factor in the situation was the powerful peace party in the Cabinet, rather than the imperious and pathetic pressure of Victoria. It is at any rate certain that the Queen's enthusiasm for the sacred cause of peace was short-lived. Within a few months her mind had completely altered. Her eyes were open to the true nature of Prussia, whose designs upon Austria were about to culminate in the Seven Weeks' War. Veering precipitately from one extreme to the other, she now urged her ministers to interfere by force of arms in support of Austria. But she urged in vain. Her political activity, no more than her social seclusion, was approved by the public. As the years passed and the royal mourning remained as unrelieved as ever, the animadversions grew more general and more severe. It was observed that the Queen's protracted privacy not only cast a gloom over high society, not only deprived the populace of its pageantry, but also exercised a highly deleterious effect upon the dressmaking, millinery, and hosiery trades. This latter consideration carried great weight. At last, early in 1864, the rumor spread that Her Majesty was about to go out of mourning and there was much rejoicing in the newspapers. But unfortunately it turned out that the rumor was quite without foundation. Victoria, with her own hand, wrote a letter to the Times to say so. This idea, she declared, cannot be too explicitly contradicted. The Queen, the letter continued, heartily appreciates the desire of her subjects to see her, and whatever she can do to gratify them in this loyal and affectionate wish she will do. But there are other and higher duties than those of mere representation which are now thrown upon the Queen, alone and unassisted, duties which she cannot neglect without injury to the public service, which weigh unceasingly upon her, overwhelming her with work and anxiety. The justification might have been considered more cogent had it not been known that those other and higher duties, emphasized by the Queen, consisted for the most part of an attempt to counteract the foreign policy of Lord Palmerston and Lord John Russell. A large section Perhaps a majority of the nation were violent partisans of Denmark in the Schleswig-Holstein quarrel, and Victoria's support of Prussia was widely denounced. A wave of unpopularity, which reminded old observers of the period preceding the Queen's marriage more than twenty-five years before, was beginning to rise. The press was rude. Lord Ellenborough attacked the Queen in the House of Lords. There were curious whispers in high quarters that she had had thoughts of abdicating, whispers followed by regrets that she had not done so. Victoria, outraged and injured, felt that she was misunderstood. She was profoundly unhappy. 
After Lord Ellenborough's speech, General Grey declared that he had never seen the Queen so completely upset. "'Oh, how fearful it is,' she herself wrote to Lord Granville, "'to be suspected, uncheered, unguided and unadvised, and how alone the poor Queen feels.' Nevertheless, suffer as she might, she was as resolute as ever. She would not move by a hair's breadth from the course that a supreme obligation marked out for her. She would be faithful to the end. And so, when Schleswig-Holstein was forgotten, and even the image of the prince had begun to grow dim in the fickle memories of men, the solitary watcher remained immutably concentrated at her peculiar task. The world's hostility, steadily increasing, was confronted and outfaced by the impenetrable weeds of Victoria. Would the world never understand? It was not mere sorrow that kept her so strangely sequestered. It was devotion. It was self-immolation. It was the laborious legacy of love. Unceasingly the pen moved over the black-edged paper. The flesh might be weak, but that vast burden must be borne. And fortunately, if the world would not understand, there were faithful friends who did. There was Lord Granville, and there was kind Mr. Theodore Martin. Perhaps Mr. Martin, who was so clever, would find means to make people realize the facts. She would send him a letter, pointing out her arduous labors and the difficulties under which she struggled, and then he might write an article for one of the magazines. It is not, she told him in 1863, the Queen's sorrow that keeps her secluded. It is her overwhelming work and her health which is greatly shaken by her sorrow and the totally overwhelming amount of work and responsibility work which she feels really wears her out alice helps was wonderfully struck at the queen's room and if mrs martin will look at it she can tell mr martin what surrounds her from the hour she gets out of bed till she gets into it again there is work work work, letter-boxes, questions, etc., which are dreadfully exhausting, and if she had not comparative rest and quiet in the evening, she would most likely not be alive. Her brain is constantly overtaxed. It was too true. End of chapter 7, part 1